Dear friends, or beloved, do not be astonished that a trial by fire is occurring among you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in the degree that you have shared in the sufferings of Christ, so that when his glory is revealed, you may also rejoice and be glad. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory, who is the spirit of God, rests upon you. But let none of you suffer because you're a murderer or a thief or a criminal or as a troublemaker or a meddler. But if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but glorify God that you bear such a name. For it is the time for judgment to begin, starting with the house of God. And if it starts with us, what will be the fate of those who are disobedient to the gospel of God? And the last two verses. And if the righteous are barely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinners? So then, let those who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful creator as they do good. Lord, thank you for your presence here today. And as we are winding down in this book of Peter, 1 Peter, I pray that you do it only you can do. I'm just a human with background and baggage who's being transformed by the very grace of God. But Lord, I know that in and of myself, my preaching can't do the heavy lifting. As the Apostle Paul said, I didn't come with eloquent words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of your spirit and your power. And so, Lord, take this worship, take wherever we're at, distracted, focused, take the prayers that have been offered, the fellowship that's going to happen, the hospitality to friends new and old, And continue to weave in this service through now the scandalous preaching of the word, this ancient practice. Make it come alive in our hearts, for I can change no one. I am saint and sinner in process, but you can do amazing things. So, Lord, we surrender. I surrender to you. We submit to one another, and then we'll wrestle with this word this week in home church, in Jesus' name. And if you're willing to, say amen or so be it. Amen. Amen. Please be seated this morning. It's always an honor to teach and preach. I love it. Someone this week, who shall remain nameless, but it's a small church, said something about the length of my sermons, and now I'm not publicly outing them. I'm sure they'll harass me later for saying this. I only get like 42 Sundays with you. I don't want to rob you of the joy of preaching, so here we are. (laughs) You can laugh at me if you wish. I can handle it. Just a little background of what's going on. So Peter's writing to churches in what would be, they used to call it Asia Minor or the far west side of Asia. And so these Christians in these churches would have come from various backgrounds. Some of them would have been Jews that were dispersed and uh, had become believers in Jesus as Messiah. Some of them uh, would have been people that were local there that became believers who would have been Gentiles, non-Jewish converts to the faith. Some would have been familiar with Judaism, some would have not. Uh, but this church is a multicultural, many-culture church in this west end of Asia, and he's writing to these churches. We don't know if Peter actually ever went to this area, but some of those people might have been Jews that became Christians who had heard Peter preaching in Jerusalem who would have made the journey for the Feast of Pentecost. And so there's some connections there between Peter and these churches. 
Peter's writing as sort of an overseer of these churches. Peter obviously wasn't following the Baptist or Mennonite model of church governance because he's writing to these individual congregations and he's telling them to bring correction and encouragement to them. Early on in the book, he uses this language in chapter 1 and 2 of when you become a Christian, in some ways you are choosing, you are choosing to be a different kind of immigrant. You are a sojourner and an alien, he uses this language. Someone, when you choose Christ, it is as if you are choosing to become a new country, a new nationality within, uh, uh, within the earthly kingdoms around you. And he says, when you're a believer, consider yourselves as citizens of the kingdom of God first. Not your ethnicity, not your social economic group, not your education class, not those things. But first and foremost, you are now a citizen of the kingdom of God and consider yourself as a resident alien or immigrant as a follower of Jesus. Finally, a little more background. Some of these folks, when they followed Jesus, it was very costly. Some of them, their families rejected them. Some of them would have been cut out of inheritances because they're no longer worshiping the family gods and they're no longer bowing down to the Greco-Roman culture or if they were coming from Judaism, they're no longer affirming exactly the same way as the Jewish practices were at the time, saying Jesus as Messiah. And so it would have been extremely costly for them. And in the larger culture, Christians within the Greco-Roman world were considered sort of atheists because they would not bow down to the gods of the empire, whether it was giving a pinch of incense on an altar to the Roman overlord or whether it was bowing to the family idols in the home. They were considered atheists because they worshipped this one God, this God who died on a cross, this scandalous God. And so this church was suffering, or it would be suffering soon. Nero, very shortly, in a few years after this writing, would blame the fire in Rome on the Christians and begin imperial persecution of Christians. And later on, it would eventually be declared that Christianity was illegal for a season within the Roman Empire. And so this book speaks to those of us when we are in pain, when we are suffering. I think of my brothers and sisters in Ethiopia who were just killed this week because they were followers of Jesus. I think of my brothers and sisters in Hong Kong or mainland China who are experiencing pressure from a government that wants to make totalizing claims, and while they're trying, most of them trying to be a blessing to the world around them. I think of my friends who are in Muslim countries. I think of the story of Andrew Brunson, who was a a missionary in Turkey, and he was persecuted for two years, and and he talks about how when he was in prison, initially he felt the presence of God, but then he, then there was a long silence. And in a beautiful testimony, when he was sharing just at Whedon College Chapel here a few months ago, in fact, the video's on YouTube if you want to watch it, I can send you the link later, he was talking about God in the midst of the silence of being in prison and in the darkness of that and the depression of that and in the torture and the suffering in that. And he said, I didn't know where I would be, but eventually when he was brought before the judges because of the political pressure, and again, it's one of those justice systems where you know, 99% of the people who are, con- who are you know, convicted of a crime are condemned and judged. So, you know, justice is whatever the state power says it is. And he said, I was surprised to find myself when I was brought up in the stand to say, Jesus, I love you, Jesus, I love you, Jesus, I love you, after going through that ordeal. It's hard for me as a Western Christian and us here in Canada to maybe get our, our minds wrapped around the context of the suffering that was happening, would be happening, or will happen. For some of us, we may experience it with our families, ostracization when we follow Christ and wrestling with that. So a bit of it I think we can identify with. So let's look through this passage today and draw out some applications as we just talk through 
the, the text today. Would you join with me? Let's do that. If you're, if you're ready to go, would you say amen? amen? Thank you. All right. So the beginning passage, we'll just look at these first few verses, uh, 12 through 16, this chunk here. He says, dear friends, don't be astonished, though a trial by fire is occurring among you as though something strange were happening to you. So his first word to them in this section, and it begins to transition, is, um, I don't know if there's any way to fix that ring, but it's driving me batty. I can hear it like, thank you. All right. (laughs) Um, Thank you, sound man. So he says, don't be afraid or don't don't be surprised that suffering will happen. We tend to often think of suffering as unusual and to be avoided at all costs and we want to get back to normal as soon as possible. And I talked about this idea of good pain and bad pain last week. When you go to the gym and you get muscle soreness, if you're doing it properly, you won't always get soreness, but that's a good pain. That's a stretching pain. It's developing something within you. But when you break your arm, that's a bad pain. And when these kinds of things happen, spiritually speaking, we want to get back to normal as soon as possible. However, we need to understand that, that normal may include suffering. Normal may include things that are painful for us. And Peter is giving them pastoral advice. He's saying trials are to be expected. Evil and sin targeted Jesus when he was on earth And he died on a cross, and Jesus was the perfect human, we believe, fully God, fully human, without sin, full of the Holy Spirit. He lived the Spirit-filled life for us, emptied himself of some of his divine attributes, filled with the Spirit to demonstrate that. And if he was uh, persecuted, then we should not be surprised if we experienced persecution. The flip side of it is this. If you never experience any form of ostracization, I can barely say that word this morning, I don't know why, If your friends sometimes who are not following Jesus don't ever raise any questions about you because your life is so much the same as theirs, you've been co-opted, you've been assimilated into the kingdom of the world. If you never experience any form of any distancing or suffering, then I would question where are you at with Jesus and are you willing to risk more for him because I think he's calling you to risk more than your comfort zone currently is allowing. And I say that in love. If we want to see the church and Jesus, if he's made a difference in your life, then it's worth sharing and finding ways to do that and risking a little bit. So he says, yes, expect suffering. It's going to happen. In fact, Jesus said this in Luke 6, 26. He said, woe to you, woe, woe, woe to you when everyone speaks well of you. You've compromised too much. In some way, Jesus' life and teachings, if everyone speaks well of you. Ed Stetzer says this about pastors. So, Pastor, if you want to be always liked, get out of ministry and go sell ice cream. So, if all we're doing is selling ice cream as followers of Jesus, there might be something we need to examine. Our Christianity has been too co-opted by our cultures, and we need to ask what we need to get back into Jesus' teachings. What is he saying? Okay, so let's move on. He says, don't be so astonished. Then he says this in verses 13 and 14 again, but rejoice, rejoice. You got to be kidding me. I'm in pain. Rejoice. In the degree that you have shared in the sufferings of Jesus, so that when his glory is revealed, you may also rejoice and be glad. And I'll read verse 14 again. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory, who is the Holy Spirit of God, rests on you. So verse 13, he says, suffering. Now, again, suffering is not necessarily a reason for bitterness and despair, but joy. This seems so countercultural. What do you mean? Have joy and suffering? Am I supposed to be psychologically off-balanced and like rejoice, uh, again, like the monk in uh, Da Vinci Code? No, no, no. 
He's saying that when we are suffering because of following Christ, because of external things coming upon us or even internal wrestling with our own sinfulness, that we can rejoice because in some ways we are identifying with Christ's sufferings. In some little way, we're identifying with Christ's sufferings on earth and on the cross. And that in that, there's an experience we can have of God's presence and Holy Spirit. So let's just think about this for a second. Just hang with me for a moment on this thought. There's something about experiencing pain for the cause of Christ, and even sometimes pain that we didn't seek out ourselves. That's unhealthy. But for following Christ, that comes sort of as a secondary um, consequence of following Christ. And Peter is saying that in that place, there's access to the Spirit of God in a unique way. That there's this experiential truth that we can encounter, this empowerment of the Spirit when we risk for Jesus. Let me give you a little challenge or homework. Find someone this week who you've not talked to about church before, but you may have a relationship with, and consider inviting them to our Christmas Eve service. Grab a little card out in the lobby. They're on the thing there. They're just the generic ones. We'll have Christmas Eve ones maybe next week. But, and see what happens. Take a risk on the edges of the kingdom of God in your life where people who don't know Christ and you know Christ and see what happens. And maybe you'll experience some rejection or some weird look. And in that, smile and know and receive from Jesus the gift of joy in that place, in that liminal place. Maybe you've experienced this in suffering in your life, wrestling with sin. And when you wrestle with sin, there's a bit of that angst or that suffering that happens when you choose not to push into that sinful place. And I challenge you to make a different decision and see not that the Holy Spirit will meet you there in that place, in that sort of boundary place, that liminal place, that on-the-line place. He says, rejoice in the degree you've shared with Christ, and if you're insulted for the name of Christ, if you truly experience some sort of a suffering or insult because of that, you are blessed because God will anoint you with his Holy Spirit in that moment when you risk for the kingdom. He is most uniquely with us in those places. It is on the edge of the kingdom where God's spirit is most present. It's when we risk our comfort zone where God's spirit is most present. It is when we take risk in serving the least of these and doing risks like this where there's these specific verses that name in the New Testament where the Holy Spirit is promised to be uniquely present and power with you when you go there. When you are bold for the cause of Christ, he promises to show up. When you are drugged before authorities, as our brothers and sisters have been in other places around the world, even today, even this week, have been brought before authorities, he says, when you are there, the Holy Spirit will be with you. Do not fear them, for they can only take your life, but fear the one who owns it all and is overall. But in that place, I will give you the words to say, uniquely present. And Jesus says, when we serve out of generosity those that are in need, To the least among us, he said, I am also uniquely present. He says, offer hospitality to strangers, for some have been known in Hebrews to entertain angels unaware. There is a unique presence of God's spirit in these liminal places. And so if you're never taking risks and you're wondering, why don't I ever experience anything beyond just intellect in my Christian journey? I challenge you, find the liminal places where the Holy Spirit is uniquely promised to be present. Have you tested these things? Have you pushed into them? I encourage you to do that. Okay. For someone this morning, that might have been everything we need. We can shut down shop, sing last song, send you out. Amen? There's places where God promises to be uniquely present. I could talk more about the manifest presence of God's spirit, but this is one of those verses that speaks of that in the case of suffering. The glory of God, the spirit of God will rest on you in a unique way.
And then he goes on, uh, verses, we'll make sure I didn't miss anything that I've really bolded in my notes that I think I absolutely need to say. Yeah, yeah, the blessing is not the opportunity in the evil itself, but that God promises to be uniquely near us in the midst of those evil situations. Yeah, the good stuff, I already covered that. All right, here we go, verse 15, get ahead of my notes. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or thief or criminal or troublemaker. Well, okay, so Peter throws this in there. By the way, if you're experiencing suffering and it's because you're being a jerk, uh, the last word there is meddler, this idea of sticking your nose into other people's business beyond what you should. It's kind of funny because he uses these lists here. He starts with, uh, let none of you suffer as a murderer. Check, I haven't killed anybody. Great. Thief, haven't stole anything. Criminal, I haven't been committed underneath the laws of Canada for anything. I'm an immigrant, so they would deport me if I was. Or as a troublemaker. So these first three are sort of like high crimes and misdemeanors, uh, but the third one is sort of this catch-all word uh, in terms of... Now, if you're suffering because you're being mean, stupid, or sinful, don't sit there and say, oh, the Lord is bringing this trial on me. <laughs> Peter's saying, okay, folks, you know, if you're being stupid, uh, that's on you. Repent, change, do something else. If, if someone's persecuting you because, you know, you keep... Uh, driving 120 in an 80-kilometer zone, uh, that's on you. That's not on Jesus. Occasionally, you'll come across Christians and be like, oh, I just suffer, you know, da-da-da-da-da. And I'm like, you know, but you're so mean. You think that's Jesus? That's not Jesus. That's you. You need to work on the fruit of the Spirit. Don't blame Jesus on that. That's all on you. Um, So that's what Peter's telling them. The stuff that's on you, own it, change it, repent. When we talk about uh, kingdoms of the world and how Christians should respond, and I have some Anabaptist background in me, um, when we, want, when we believe God has called us to protest injustice in the world, how we do it as believers is super important. Martin Luther King Jr., uh, the civil rights movement in America is sort of a shining example of this in the past where the church took the lead in this and often, and yes, there was sin and all kinds of other things going on, but there was this sense that we must do it in a nonviolent way and, and we need to learn from the teachings of Jesus. When we protest, and again, Some of us may have family or friends in Hong Kong. If you're a follower of Christ, how you protest the evils of empire matters. How you do it matters. He says, don't do it as a troublemaker. Don't do it as a thief or a murderer. But do it in a way that is God-honoring and honors the humanity, even in your enemy. We never dishonor the humanity in our enemy, whoever our enemy may be. In very hopes that the gospel would enter in and turn some of them into friends and reconciliation. Okay. So he says this, verse 16, but if you suffer as a Christian, not because of these other things, don't be ashamed, but glorify God that you bear such a name. Why would he say that? He'd say, don't be ashamed. Well, think about this. Uh, One author, uh, Karen Jobs, puts it this way. Maybe they thought that they should be ashamed of themselves for believing something that so offended their society, their family, their culture. In a culture where one's standing is based on honor and shame, shame is no doubt a major issue, she says, for Christians who offend their society by their beliefs and lifestyle. But Peter wants his readers to understand themselves on very different terms, and he provides an alternative way of understanding or calculating honor and shame within their alternative communities of faith. What we view as honor and shame in the church should look different than some of the pieces in our larger cultures. Honor and shame out there. Maybe in a culture where I come from, 
where hard work and thrift were high values and work until you're just almost dead is sort of the Mennonite cultural piece in me. And, 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 and emotion's great, but you know what? Work is where it's at. And get your full identity out of that. Maybe the church culture that says Sabbath matters, rest matters, delight and play absolutely matters is offensive to some people within that culture of origin that I come from. No, play is what you do after everything is done, but the kingdom of God says, no, you stop And if we look at the law as sort of a a guidance mechanism under grace, you stop at least once every seven days or six days and you rest and delight because your uh, ultimate worth, your identity, and your security is not in your ability to work. It's ultimately in the king of the universe. That can be offensive to some culture, particularly part of my background. You delight, you stop, you play because that's admitting that you are not God and he is. And that you need rest and you need relaxation and you need to learn to let go of control. And this sense that if I can just work hard enough, I can control my circumstances. Release. I don't know what it is in your background or your culture, but Peter is telling them, if you suffer as a Christian, even though the culture around you may be shaming you, Because you have a new family, a new humanity, this many cultures kingdom of God in this local expression of the church, we are to understand that there's a different measuring of honor and shame. And in that, he says, don't be ashamed. Don't be beaten down by those outside emotions they're trying to project on you, but glorify God because you bear the name of Jesus. And there is the highest honor in bearing the name of Jesus, regardless of all the other supposed honors around us. This would have preached to these people suffering. They would have gotten this. They would have been like, oh, that's such a relief for my soul. That is such fresh water and fresh air to hear that when I suffer for the name of Jesus, even though my culture is dissing me and my government's dissing me and the Greco-Roman culture around me is telling me that I'm, that I'm this, some sort of atheist in this process. Uh, when, and he's saying, hear this. When you do that for the name of Jesus, the honor of the almighty God rests upon you. You are his beloved. You are honored in his sight. You are precious. You are his son and daughter. And he delights in you if you're willing to to, to, to bear his name. That was good for me, I guess. I'm in it. All right. Hey, man, somebody? I don't know. Okay. All right. We'll, We'll get here. We're almost there. And he gets to the last few verses. Let's do a check in with everyone. Are we all doing okay this morning? Everybody okay? Nod your head. Okay. So these last few verses. For it is the Time for judgment to begin. Ooh. We don't like that word in late modern places like Canada. It's time for judgment to begin. And then it gets worse. Starting with the house of God. And remember earlier he said that we are living stones being built on Christ, the cornerstone. So we are this sort of spiritual house. He mixes all these metaphors together. The bride of Christ, the spiritual house, living stones, sons and daughters, and he says, but the time of judgment begins with us, the house of God, and if it starts with us, what will it be the fate of those who are disobedient? And let's just pause there and talk about that just for a second. Verse 18, he builds on it. If the righteous are barely saved, what will become of the ungodly and sinners? His point is not to pick on the ungodly and sinners. His point is to remind those who are claiming to follow Jesus that God always begins with us. And it does irk me a little bit when here in late modern or postmodern Christianity, certainly in places like the U.S. and Canada and Europe, that um, some churches are still railing at the culture. Now, I'm teaching differences between what we should be creating as Christian culture and then what 
our culture around us is or cultures are. But at the end of the day, I'm not sitting there giving that message to the people out in the culture. I'm giving it to those of you that are interested or following Jesus. Make sure you get that distinction here. I'm not standing on the street corner with the sign telling the culture it's going to go burn, turn or burn. That's not how we approach the larger culture if we want to be winsome for Jesus. In fact, that's not how Jesus approached larger culture. Jesus started with the most religious folks within his culture, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And it says here, the time of judgment starts with the house of God. So in other words, as believers, our posture needs to be one of extreme humility and grace and honesty about where we're at with things in our lives and things in our church. That there's something refreshing about saying we need the mercy and grace of Jesus because we don't want to be judged according to our sins. We want to be judged according to God's mercy on our lives. And so that should change our posture and how we wrestle with things. We should be the most real people on the face of the planet because we have been captivated by God who says, I love you in spite of you and I will forgive your sins. If you walk in relationship with me, I'll remove all of those things that that destroy relationship. If you walk in relationship with me, the judgment starts with the house of God. This is a theme in the New Testament and the Old Testament as well. That God wants us to live in a posture of humility. That we say, Lord, I repent of my sins. Part of our prayer should be celebrating goodness, but also, Lord, I repent, I'm in process. And the more holy you think you are, if it's true, also the more aware of, man, I'm broken. I mean, God can't deal with all the stuff in your life at day one when you become a Christian. You couldn't handle it. If when I first believed, as a, and I was a kid at that time, and God gave me the list of all the things that I may or may not do that are sinful and broken and destructive, and he said, here it all is, Shell, here's everything in your life, I would be overwhelmed. Be like, oh, you know, forget it. But he convicts us, and he draws us, and he woos us, because he wants to transform us by his spirit dwelling within us. Judgment begins in our own hearts. Jesus said, before you take the speck of dust out of your brother or sister's eye, look at the log in your own. That's a principle for all time for Christians, how we operate in the world. But look at those politicians and look at those sinners over there and look at those people over there and look at what's going on over here. When we take that tone in the culture, we miss it. We have missed the fact that no, it begins with us. Let God work with us so we can go out then in humility and grace and show others a different way of being human, of flourishing and love-centered instead of We being the ones of judgment, God is on that throne. It starts with the house of God. Oh, there's more we could say about that. Amen. Did you hear what I'm saying? This makes sense. And he says this, don't worry about those other folks. They're going to have, God will handle it all. He will judge it all. You worry about you. Magnify your sins. And you think about that first. And then you'll be able to approach the culture appropriately. Verse 18, by the way, uh, let me just read you another quote from Karen Jobs, or Carrie Jobs. Verse 18, Peter's point is not that salvation is difficult for God to achieve. Though the sufferings of Christ were certainly no easy means of atonement, they were real. The thought here is that the world's response makes it difficult for Christians to remain faithful to Christ to the end. The thought is that the world's response makes it difficult for you and I to remain faithful to Jesus the end. But for the grace of God and the Holy Spirit, none of us would be wrestling with this message today. We would just be assimilated and capitulate to the kingdom of the world. But Jesus, 
he speaks a better word. It's like we hear that song distantly, off in the distance, and we're attracted to it. Or we have that sense of a hole in our being that we try to fill with all these things, relationships, all the identity things that our culture claims, and yet the hole is still there. But when we begin to talk with Jesus, that hole begins to, there's a healing that begins to take place. And it's, and it's a whole lifelong process, but it begins to fill that place. But for God, the church would not be. But indeed, here it is. We are moving because of his grace and his mercy generation to generation. I think the challenges for kids in the next generation in every church, because they don't necessarily know the depths of the darkness that the generation before came out of or the generations before came out of. I think for those, it's always the next generation that wrestles with this. And I think there's an honesty if you are the next generation that you have to wrestle with. Where are you at with Jesus? Have you been honest about your brokenness and your blessedness? Are you you in that place or are you simply being co-opted by the kingdoms of the world and being compressed into its mold? Well, let's get to the last verse. He says this, So then, let those who suffer according to the will of God, meaning suffering because they're following the will of God, not that God has said, ordained that you will experience this or that suffering, but when we follow him, Because of the will of God, we experience suffering. Entrust your souls to a faithful creator and keep doing good. This makes me think of the Winston Churchill quote. If you're going through hell, keep on going. (laughs) If you're going through hell, keep going. Don't send me all the emails. Yes, I know all the problems with Winston Churchill. Yes, yes, yes. But he still has some great singers. We're going to use them for Jesus. If you're in the midst of suffering and trial, You can capitulate and assimilate and become part of hell itself, or you can keep marching through hell because eventually you will get through it to the other side. Peter says, entrust your soul to a faithful God and keep doing good. Don't become like the enemy. Don't become turned in on yourself where you make yourself God and every particular emotion or thing that you sense, you elevate it. You want, to, you want to begin to grow. You want to go beyond. You want to become the best version of you. And to do that, keep doing good. Keep being guided by the teachings of Christ. Peter wants us to trust God when things are not going well. And reading to Andrew Brunson's or listening to his testimony, he talks about this, this idea of keeping doing good in the midst of this persecution. And he said, when your faith is tested by true suffering in this world as it is, there's a prayer you can offer back to God and say, like Paul said, you know, I have run the race. I've completed my task. I've been found faithful. It's easy to say I'm a Christian when it's costing you zero, when you're just acting like the world And you're not letting the spirit transform you from within. And you're not letting outrageous love define you. But when you love in the face of hate or persecution, you're found faithful. Rest in trust of God. You can say, like Paul did, I have finished my race. I have fought the good fight. I'm ready to receive my reward. So my brothers and sisters, as I land this plane and let you out, Gently this morning. Hear these things. If you're going through hell, keep going. 
If you're struggling with sin, but you're struggling with it instead of simply saying, so be it, I assimilate to the world. If you're struggling with it, you are blessed and the presence of Christ is with you. Hear that as a word of encouragement. He is with you in the midst of the struggle. He encourages you. His face is shining upon you. If you're experiencing family or other pressures as you follow Christ, know that there is an anointing on the one who suffers for the name of Christ and that the suffering for Christ is far better than suffering for fleeting conformity to the dying empire, the Babylons of this world, for they will not last forever. But the kingdom of Jesus will go on and on and on. And indeed, one day he says that this thing will come to some sort of an end. And at that time, all powers, all identity markers, everything that has made claims on people and tried to be the place of God himself will be exposed as a complete sham. And it started on the cross and it finishes in the second advent of Christ when he comes again and you want to be on the side that's rooted in outrageous love not the one rooted in judgment and getting your identity out of all the things of this world all the ins and outs and the othering and finally I I could say this that Advent is about the suffering of waiting the in-between times we like Peter's reading live between the first and the second coming of Christ But here, this Holy Spirit is still at work. The Spirit has been poured out on all flesh, and he has given us a down payment of what is to come. And yet we live in that tension, and we can call that tension a form of suffering as well. And that's why the early church, and in Advent, one of the common prayers is simply this, come, Lord Jesus, come. It's not wrong in the midst of the pain to be honest about it, by the way. Don't hear dishonesty about it. He's naming stuff for them here. And sometimes when you're wrestling, whether it's with individual, choosing a different way of living with your body or living with others in community are two areas of main sin, social and personal. And we live in that tension. The anointing of Christ is there when we wrestle. But sometimes we just have to rest in this and say, come Lord Jesus, come. When we see the pain in the world, we we sometimes just need to, to celebrate God. You're coming again and you will make things right. And we rest in that, and in worship we do that, and in silence we do that, in prayer we do that. And then we are empowered to go back out and do good and do the fight of justice and do the fight of the kingdom of God and share the name of Jesus. So it's okay to live in that and and name that. I want you to stand with me this morning as uh, we prepare to uh, leave this place and go eat food. It's good to end with a potluck after a message on suffering. Amen. For some of you, it's because you're going to be tempted to eat too much. Let the Holy Spirit work with you in that. For others of you, just delight and enjoy. Okay, all right. No, I better shut up. That's, that's a whole other sermon. All right. <clears throat> so this morning, as we conclude the teaching time and we prepare to sing and send our way out of here, who are you following today? Are you following Jesus? Have you given your allegiance to him? If you haven't done that... I want to, as humbly as I can, as your servant, as a a servant leader in the church of God, I want to offer you this challenge. Will you choose to follow Jesus today? Now, sometimes Baptists, we like to do short little pithy little prayers. Admit that you're a sinner. Believe that Jesus is real. Confess with your mouth that he is Lord. ABCs of salvation. Well, that's fine, but it's not the full gospel. It's, It's part of becoming a Christian. But it can be super simple And then the rest of it's a life choice. 
Following Jesus is saying, Jesus, I, I align my allegiance. In fact, that's maybe a better way to talk about faith in our culture. Allegiance, as Matthew Bates would argue. I give my first allegiance to you above kingdom, above country, above family of origin, above social economic status. My first allegiance I give to you. Now, I, I turn from making myself God or other things God, and I turn to you and say, Jesus, I want you to be God in my life. I want you to be center in my being. And you can use whatever words you want in your mind or out loud, but this idea of confessing him as king and God and Lord, allegiance, first allegiance, is how you begin this journey of, of becoming a Christian. New Testament says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, believe is a whole spectrum of things, of allegiance, of following, of wrestling with his teachings, of gathering in community, and you will be saved. And he says, it's the following that counts. It's the walking that counts. And so this morning, brothers and sisters, I conclude by praying, and if you are ready to say yes to Jesus and to take your next step today of allegiance with him, you can pray a prayer just like this. Lord Jesus, be my Lord. Come into my life. Let your spirit come within me and work me from the inside out. I, I turn from making myself God. I turn from being the judge of all things and let you become the judge of all things. I renounce the powers and the kingdoms of this world and I give my first allegiance to you. And maybe it's your first prayer and you can simply pray, in your name, Jesus, I pray, amen.